Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest today is Professor Kelly Lytle Hernandez, who is the Thomas Lifka Chair in History at UCLA, where she also teaches in the Departments of African American Studies and Urban Policy. Professor Lytle Hernandez is the author of two award-winning books, Migra, A History of the U.S. Border Patrol that came out in 2010, and City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles, 2017, uh, about which we'll have a chance to speak in just a minute. Kelly is also the director of an extraordinary project based at UCLA called Million Dollar Hoods that combines her work as a scholar and as an activist. And just last year, in 2019, Kelly received the prestigious Genius Grant from the MacArthur Foundation in recognition of her extraordinary work in studying and her efforts to combat racial injustice. So we stand today at a moment of reckoning of the deep structures of injustice in the United States. And it's also a moment of generational transition. Just hours ago today, Representative John Lewis was laid to rest after a lifetime of getting into good trouble, necessary trouble as he put it. He was eulogized by three presidents and the Speaker of the House, as well as by one of the great prophets of the movement for racial and social justice, the Reverend James Lawson, who delivered an extraordinary remembrance of John Lewis. Reverend Lawson offered a sweeping historical account of the movement for racial justice and situated John Lewis as one of the founding fathers of the more perfect union that America must strive toward today. It seems fitting to have as our guest Kelly Lytle Hernandez, who knows and has worked with Reverend Lawson, and who too uses her study of the past of racial injustice in order to agitate for a better future. Welcome to you, Kelly. It's really a delight to have you here on Thin and Now. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be in conversation with you, my friend, always. Wonderful. Um, is there anything you want to just say about the moment, about today, um, and where we stand uh, at this moment in time, um, this moment of reckoning and of generational transition, before we delve into your your important work? Well, that's a big question, right? So for those of us who have been working in the movement to end mass incarceration and mass deportation, um, we've been working for this moment for, for decades, right? I'm a baby in this movement. I've just been at it for 20 years. <laughs> People have been at it for um, as long as this this beast has been in place, certainly since the end of the civil rights movement. Um, so I have great hope in this moment that the folks I know that I've been working with are prepared and ready to help us build this more perfect union, this more perfect world that we're all looking for. Um, there's always something that is nagging at the back of my mind and the back of my soul these days. I am concerned about how rapidly the middle shifted from reforming police systems and carceral systems to talking more radically about abolition. And I, I hope that that has deep legs and there's, there's real support for doing the hard, hard work that we have to do in the years ahead to um, divest, invest, and redress um, the deep history of white supremacy in this country, which is what you see manifesting at the edge of the, the knife, at the edge of the state, which is in our police mm. and prison systems. So I have great hope. I have so much faith in my comrades. I have also um, reservations about how, how hard okay. we're going to push. And a sober recognition, a sober recognition of the challenges ahead, I imagine. So I want to, of course, we will talk about today and, and what the challenges look like at both local and global levels. But I want to go back to talk about your historical research, which has been so consequential uh, and important for so many. Um, 
as always, based on very careful, deep archival research. And it has really drilled down into those two issues that you mentioned, the phenomena of mass deportation and mass incarceration. And I'm wondering, what's the connection between those two? Well, I have the first two books that I mentioned dealt with those topics. Is that coincidental? Um, are they connected in some way? What do mass deportation and mass incarceration tell us about the United States and about deep structures in this country? You mentioned white supremacy, so I suppose the answer lies somewhere in that direction. That's definitely where we're heading um, with this answer. Uh, <laughs> I think to be able to answer that appropriately, I really have to tell you a little bit about my story and how I came to study these issues. And for me, this is a very, this is a deeply personal area of research. So I, I grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border in the 1980s and the 1990s when the war on immigrants and the war on drugs were both at a high pitch. And I grew up with the Border Patrol patrolling our communities, snatching people off of buses, questioning people at transit stations, um, coming to schools. That was a terrifying experience. And I don't come from an immigrant family. I was not at risk of losing my parent, right? or my sibling or my uncle. Um, and I felt how palpable the fear was in our communities around the border patrol. And I was deeply curious about why it was acceptable for this police force to swagger the way that they did through our communities and take people away. And that's from a very, very young age. As I got a little bit older and as a black youth began to experience the policing around the war on drugs and getting taken out of school, put on the curb, parties broken up, friends arrested, um, friends shot. Um, I began to see that kind of racialized policing in, in new ways. And what was always very curious to me is that the, the boys in green were policing the brown folks and the boys in blue were policing the black folks. And I wanted to better understand what the, the connection was between all of it. I didn't know what it was, of course, I was just a kid. I started doing some organizing work um, around undocumented migration um, and in the camps in North County, San Diego, as a teenager and through college. And I knew that when I got to graduate school, this was the, the question I wanted to pursue was, um, why is it okay, does it seem okay to the general public to so aggressively police black and brown communities in these specific ways around immigration control and the war on drugs. So I, the first approach to this was to try to figure out the story that I thought I, I understood the least, right? To take the time to really dig deep into uh, Mexican American history, Mexican history, um, the story of the borderlands and gain an understanding of what was happening with the border patrol. And I certainly came to the, conclusion, and it wasn't hard to do, that the evolution of white supremacy in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and at the border um, targeted Mexican immigrants in particular ways, and that the Border Patrol, which was established in 1924 after the passage of new legislation, the National Origins Act, which was essentially a whites-only immigration law, went about its business by directing the violence of the state against Mexican immigrants in particular. And so I tracked that story over time, how Border Patrol violence remained consistently racialized, but shifted in its tactics over time. So it goes from being explicitly brutal and violent during the 1920s, when you see the lynchings beginning to surge once again, and the culture of racial violence is everywhere. But it shifts after World War II and becomes a more delicate and institutionalized form of violence, where it uses fences and various forms of technology to... Um, to harm Mexican bodies and Mexican people and increasingly Central American folks who are crossing the border. Um, I wrote that book, came out in 2010. I knew that I wanted to now shift my focus to think about black folks a little bit more um, deeply and think about incarceration than policing and brown folks. I wanted to think about incarceration and black folks. And so I dug around looking for the story of how LA built the largest jail system in not just the country, but the world and what that meant for black folks over time. And then doing that work, found all of these archives. It's so many different stories I never expected to find and grounded me in the origin story of 
policing and incarceration here in Los Angeles, California, and throughout the American West, which is the criminalization of policing of indigenous folks. Once I had that origin story, I had a path to follow. And that origin story is, um, yes, is about white supremacy and a particular form of it, of settler colonialism, as Anglo-Americans came into the American West, claimed land from indigenous folks, used a variety of tools to do that, war, genocide, and policing, right? And once I began to understand the story of racialized policing through a settler colonial lens, I began to more firmly understand how all these threads were working together. In a white settler state, you have um, multiple attempts to lay claim to land, to secure power over a community, and to regulate um, the entrance of marginalized communities into that area. And so what I began to better understand is that there have been three forced migrations in the making of, of the United States. The first, of course, is the targeting and removal of indigenous populations, that process of native elimination, as Patrick Wolf and others have put it, that removes anywhere between two and 17 million people from their homes, right? The second forced migration, of course, is the transatlantic slave trade, which brought over 400,000 enslaved persons to this, this country, which grew to more than 4 million by the beginning of the Civil War. And the third is the effort to regulate who's able to come to this country. And a third forced migration is deportation. And the United States federal government has instituted more than 50 deportations since 1896. Those three forced migrations together, when you think about them together, help us to really understand the persistence of the United States as a white settler nation that has a culture that tends toward the removal and elimination of indigenous folks and racial minorities. And so that's how these stories fit together. Mass incarceration and mass deportation are two systems of a white settler society that trends and thrusts constantly toward native elimination and the disappearance of racialized minorities as well as queer folks and sexual so-called deviance. So I didn't see all that. I didn't know all that as a child. I didn't see all that. I didn't know that as I was working my way through these books. But that's where I am now after this um, couple decades of scholarship. So much of, of interest in that. Um, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how law works in such a system. Right? You have been drawn again and again to law enforcement, right? mechanisms of law enforcement. And I'm wondering, when you think of the Border Patrol or you think of police, are they operating within the law, albeit a law that is you know, discriminatory and racist, you would say, at the core? Or are they engaging in extra-legal uh, maneuvers, as, for example, you know, many of us think about federal troops on the streets of Portland? What is the relationship between law and that system of uh, white supremacist, supremacist exclusion that you've drawn? Because you're, you're drawn back again to mechanisms of law enforcement. I'm just sort of curious how you, how you understand. Is it that the system constructs a notion of law that allows for a kind of perfect world, provided that it's devoid of people of color? Or can we identify you know, actions that are extra legal, even according to the logic of that system? That's a good question. I think my answer would be and and both. <laughs> um, not to dance around it too much, but I, I think, have been drawn to the study of the law, probably because of that early curiosity with the legitimate forms of racial violence, right, or legitimized forms of racial violence. Um, I would never argue that the extra legal is less relevant. I think it's highly relevant. Um, but I was always curious about the mundane and the banal and why that was regarded as so acceptable. Um, when I was seeing immigrants getting beat over the head on the side of the freeway and nobody blinked, right? Uh, when growing up, you're watching families and young people run as fast as they could to get across the border and the freeway to avoid these armed men who were going to shoot them for nothing more than trying to live a better life. 
that's banal kind of violence. And I wanted to understand why that was acceptable. So that I think is why I have been drawn there. Now, whether or not what the Border Patrol, for example, has done has been legal or illegal, they've done both, (laughs) right? I would say the vast majority of what they have done has been lawful violence, um, has been lawful white supremacy. And, you know, here's the importance of history, right? They weren't even given the job of targeting Mexicans in particular. Their job was to go out and broadly enforce U.S. immigration law, which restricted all kinds of different people, right? Certainly all peoples of Asian origin were prohibited from entering the United States after the the Immigration Act of 1924 and prior to. Anybody who was an anarchist, who was liable to be a public charge, who um, engaged in sex labor, prostitution within three years arriving at the border, um, anyone who was a so-called public health risk, all these people were undocumented, right, and could have been policed. The Border Patrol, through a set of historical um, shifts, that happened, contingencies, really focused all that power on policing just one population. And by the time we get to the 1950s, that seemed natural, right? They're they're logical, that there'd be no other way, even within that racist regime, of going about border patrol work. So much so that by 1974, the United States Supreme Court legitimizes racial profiling in the world of immigration control because it would be illogical to presume Mexicans to be anything or people of Mexican origin to be anything other than undocumented. So, so long as you are of Mexican appearance and within a hundred miles of the border and look like you might be walking away from the border, you are a legitimate suspect of US immigration law enforcement and they can stop you on those grounds. So that became law, right? That form of racial profiling. Where is the public in the story? Where's public opinion? Um, Meaning from the um, exclusionary laws of 1924 and the creation of the Border Patrol, um, you build up this argument about sort of kind of uh, an increasingly um, effective means of exclusion. Um, My intuition is to say that there have been ebbs and flows in public attitudes towards the virtues of immigration, that there have been periods of greater receptivity and periods of greater xenophobia. Is that so? Um, Or has there also been a kind of consistent attitude on the part of, I guess, the large white public uh, about the importance of excluding? How complicit, in a sense, has the general mass been with this system of exclusion? Totally complicit. And so what you describe as receptive versus xenophobic, I would describe as the two different faces of white supremacy, right? So you have the economic demands of white supremacy that always wants to bring in racialized, marginalized, temporary workers into the fields, into the factories, into our homes, right? That will never become permanent members of our society that are disposable, deportable, racialized, excluded. Now that's the sort of raw capitalist economic side of white supremacy, of racial capitalism. There's the other cultural, natural, national side, right? That you're seeing in, in President Trump, for example, that says, no, we need an all white community, right? We cannot accept anybody that's not us. And so we'll figure out how to build our economy without these folks. And so that, that's the dueling sides of white supremacy that I talk about in City of Inmates that's constantly going back and forth between opening the doors and closing the doors. But what is res- consistent is this commitment to the white settler community, the white settler society, that when we're bringing in immigrants, it's in this conversation you hear all the time today, well, who else is going to work in the fields, right? Americans aren't going to take that work, right? That is one of the most delicate forms of white supremacy that is living with us today. And it's very much a part of our immigration policy. Because it's premised on exploitation as the- Premise on exploitation, Uh right? Um, So I don't see that as sort of, well, I just don't describe it as receptivity versus xenophobia as opposed to these different threads of white supremacy that um, 
you know, they, they trade places constantly, but they're constantly in tension with one another as well. So I want to, in a second, jump into a discussion of City of Inmates, but I can't um, restrain myself from asking, in the world, according to Kelly Lytle Hernandez, would there be borders? <laughs> well, you asked me that in a moment of, um, of abolition, right? So we are beginning to really seriously question um, all the things that we think keep us safe. And borders is certainly one of them. And what we enforce a border for, is it for people who are looking for work? Is it for goods? Is it for armed troops? Um, I think that the question of the border needs to be raised in this moment that we think about abolition. Absolutely. There are other ways, healthier ways, ways that are built around supporting thriving communities and families for all of us um, than in border enforcement. Are you ready to talk about some of them just briefly, telegraphically? Yeah, we can definitely talk about what... Just for a minute. I just want to, you know, um, entice our audience out there to think (laughs) further. Well, I mean, I think that these questions that we're opening right now about policing in general, whether it's policing in our communities, Los Angeles, or policing at the border, um, it's a similar set of questions about what is public safety, which we all want. We all want to be and feel safe, right? That is a shared desire. Um, How we achieve that? It's so funny because I was just in a meeting earlier today about um, shutting down men's central jail here in Los Angeles and developing the blueprint of what we need to do to get that done. And there's a lot of things that need to happen. We need to um, reimagine our 911 system. We need, which would mean if you're having a crisis at your home, let's say one of your children is having a mental health crisis, right? Who do you call to get help for your child? that won't show up with a gun and potentially harm them, who will show up with the skills and the care to be able to assist them, to deescalate the situation. What we've seen too many times, especially for black families, is that when we look for help, what we get is harm that comes at us. You know, it's funny, I just wanna take another deviation really quick for a historical example of how we've made these kinds of transitions before away from policing and to public safety that has improved the conditions of life for all of us. So in the late 60s, people um, in the health field may be familiar with the story, but the rest of us, it's it's kind of new. Um, African-American in Philadelphia and other places, if you were having a health crisis and you needed to get to the hospital, the police would come and get you and take you to the hospital, right? Well, for African-Americans, that was a very dangerous situation when the police showed up to provide aid and to get you to the hospital. So um, local black organizers and hospitals got together to think about pre-hospitalization services and the well-being of black folks who were in crisis and needed to get to the hospital. And they developed a new system whereby people who were trained in transportation and basic health care would show up and provide the transportation to the hospital. This is the origin of the EMT service, right? So that has transformed all of our lives. We now have someone to call when we're experiencing a physical health crisis who will safely get us to the hospital. We've done that before. And we're asking to do that again, over and over and over and over until we get to the point that we don't need um, police to respond to all of our social crises. So what does that look like today? It looks like revamping, reimagining our 911 system. It looks like revamping, investing in our K through 16 educational system so that transitional age youth, the people who are most often policed and caged, that 18 to 26 age in particular, are fully engaged in their own personal development and education um, without worry of food, of labor, that they're developing their young minds that science has told us is still developing in this period of their lives. So these are the kinds of investments, interventions that we can make that are just so logical and sensible to improve well-being for all of us. Um, Another example is we don't need armed officers to engage in traffic stops, right? If your tags are out of date, 
why do you need an armed officer to come and address that issue? Um, if your taillight is out, why do you need an armed officer to address that issue? So there's this whole world of policing that has cre been created um, that creates opportunities for that tendency of the settler state to eliminate black life, to rear its head. And what we're talking about in the movement is shutting that down and investing in the systems that we know are more committed to the well-being of black life. Now, of course, there's still work to do across all of the, the systems. <laughs> uh, no one would say that our healthcare system is full of or is free of bias, right? Look at COVID and what it's exposing for us today. No one would say that our educational system is free of bias. There's still much more work to do. But we got to get the guns out of this story. We got to get that um, training for violence out of this story and continue the work um, in our schools, our healthcare system, and elsewhere. Hmm. It's interesting because in a certain sense, you know, the question arises, um, don't you need to actually excavate the foundation of the system and completely replace it? But in a certain sense, the theory of change you propose suggests, you know, begin at the local level, get the guns out of the hands of people. And that's a way to start with, you know, while that, you know, long, laborious work of excavating the foundation proceeds. Yeah. Begin at the local level. Begin with, you know, that which is tangible or seems to be within grasp, as it were. I think there are a lot of beginning points here. Yeah. I think there are three things we need to do. We need to divest from policing. We need to invest in Black life, Indigenous life, undocumented folks. And we need to redress white supremacy, like the long history of white supremacy. Different communities are in different places ready to take on each of those challenges. Tulsa, Oklahoma is more ready because they've been doing the work to talk about reparations in a way that here in Los Angeles, I don't think we could move that conversation all that quickly. But we've been doing the work on divesting from police and Black Lives Matter has been leading us in that work. And we're ready to have that fight here. It doesn't mean that the other two don't happen. It's just every community I think has to decide for themselves which door they're going to push through first. And it's not a singular process. I mean, lots of we can chew gum and walk at the same time, right? Lots of things can be happening at the same time. But what's happening in the movement is we're getting locked in this debate about what should happen first. And it all needs to happen, right? So I just want to always, for me, emphasize that there's a multiplicity um, of demands right now. And every community has to figure out for themselves. Every person has to figure out for themselves what they're ready to do. And everyone has to fight. But don't delay because you can't figure out which door to go through. You've got to go. Right. <laughs> and you don't want to feel overwhelmed. I get it. It's a lot to do. Pick one. Go for it. Everybody's got something to do. So your, your juxtaposition a minute ago between Tulsa and Los Angeles is striking because to the uninitiated observer, um, Los Angeles would seem to be a bastion of liberal progressive values. And yet, as you chronicle... Um, so uh, compellingly in City of Inmates, um, Los Angeles has the largest number of incarcerated people in the world. You wrote a book about this. How did that happen? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have some time constraints. <laughs> uh, that's such a big question, and it is at the, the base of City of Inmates. And so um, for people who are listening, the Los Angeles County Jail System is the largest county jail system in the country and the Barrett Institute of Justice has said, in fact, it's the largest local jail system in the world. Um, so there are other singular institutions which are probably larger, but when we talk about county jails, LA is right at the top. And we've been there for a very long time. We've been um, a national and global leader of incarceration since the 1950s and our jails have been overcrowded since they were, were begun. How did that happen? Um, that's the story I chronicle in City of Inmates. And it's about LA, yes, but it's also more broad, broadly about the American West and our story of policing and incarceration, so lifting up a regional twist on what we've now come to understand as um, the history of racial capitalism coming out of the American South and the American North, the urban North. So the story that I tell is about in the US period, how after the US-Mexico war, and white settlers pushed into this new contested territory. 
one of the tools that they developed to criminalize and remove indigenous populations from the land was law and law enforcement, right? So we want where you live. <laughs> we want the land that you've been caretaking for thousands of years. How do we get you off of it? Well, there's a couple things we can do, right? We can send our army. We can definitely do that. Um, we can also say, call you a criminal. We can look at the behaviors and activities that you're engaged in and deem them illegal and call you um, either um, vagrants, right? That's a very popular one, or drunks, um, trespassers on what is now our territory. And so that's the, the origin story of policing here in Los Angeles and across the American West, the arrival of white settlers and the strategic criminalization of the indigenous population with the goal, the clear goal of banishing indigenous peoples outside of the boundaries of the city and the county to the hinterlands um, while a war of genocide was unfolding certainly in the mid 19th century. So when you understand that as the origin story of criminalization, policing, and incarceration in the American West, and you begin to march forward, what you do is you can easily witness the transition of that story over time to target different populations, use different tools and tactics, but the outcome is always the same, the maintenance, the protecting of that white settler community. So in City of Inmates, I track through six stories this transition over time. Um, following a chapter on indigenous peoples, uh, I go through probably what's one of the more surprising stories of policing criminalization in the US. And that is at the turn of the 20th century, there are all these white men who were traveling the country um, looking for work. They had been displaced from land back East, especially after the Civil War and after the rise of corporate capitalism. And they struck out west looking for work. They worked in the seasonal industries, lumber, mining, all of that. And you have all these white men who are moving without women, without regular work, and without land. And they too constituted a form of a racial threat to the settler society because um, they refused to buy in to the settler ideal. And you had all these white guys sitting around in the center of LA who refused to, to settle down. And they became the targets of a pretty profound war on tramps, a war on hobos. And so if you went to the LA County Jail in 1900, 1907, it was almost 100% white, white men. And those were largely people who were swept up on these raids against so-called tramps and hobos. So after telling that story, I then go through a variety of other stories, the criminalization of Chinese immigrants, the rise of immigration control as a new tool of um, criminalizing and banishing unwanted populations um, and the creation of immigrant detention as a new form of human caging. Uh, the rise of efforts to criminalize Mexicans who were arriving in the early 20th century, um, right on up to um, the late 20th century, early 21st century. How the development of a new tool, which is in 1929, the United States Congress first criminalized unmonitored entry into the United States. They called entering the United States without authorization of a misdemeanor and returning to the United States without after deportation a felony. That was a strategic choice to be able to manage the flow of Mexican migration into the United States. And it was critically important because it directly led to the expansion of the federal prison system um, across the country, certainly here in the American West and here in Los Angeles, and led to large numbers of Mexican immigrants being incarcerated. That piece of legislation is critically important to us today because that is the law that sends more people to federal prison than any other code in the country. So it very much lives with us today. And it was born with the strict intent of managing Mexican immigration to the country. And then I go and I certainly, I, I spend a good deal of time talking about how um, the rise of incarceration targeting LA's black community was joined by a profound level of violence targeting black life and black bodies, which remains consistent to this day, of course. And I do that chronicling the first reported killing of a young black man um, by the LAPD. His name was Sam Faulkner, and he was killed on April 29th, 1927 by the LAPD. And I tell that story um, as part of the origin story of 
police violence in Black communities, but more important as the origin story of Black protest against um, police violence. And then track that protest all the way through the explosion of the 1965 Watts Rebellion. Um, so that's sort of the story that I tell in City of Inmates that tracks through different communities, different tactics, different periods, but remains consistent over time. That criminalization, policing, incarceration has been a familiar tool of the settler state. Um, and you can certainly see it happening today um, with the aggressive policing of our houseless and homeless populations, um, with the racially disparate outcomes of policing incarceration um, for Black folks um, in particular, in terms of disparity, for Latinx folks in terms of sheer magnitude. Um, that settler story is very much alive on the streets of the city, as is the protest. Right. And I guess the protest raises a question, which is... Um, what possibility for protest resistance against such a dominant white settler machine is there? Um, and I guess just in thinking of the historical accounts which you've offered, what agency is there in the hands of those who are the victims of racism and discrimination? Is it the case that the state and its mechanisms of oppression are all powerful and leave no possibility for agency? Um, or is there some measure of agency that remains in the hands of uh, the victims of discrimination? What does that look like over you know, the long duration up to the present? Yeah, of course there's agency, right? I mean, we're here and we're alive because of the agency of our, our ancestors, right? So um, I am testament and so many people are testament to the fight that has been had to make sure that we had the right to breathe and to be here. So I would I affirm agency left and right. Um, the settler dream has never, never won. And it's because of the persistence of the people. So I believe that in this moment that you and I are talking, what is this, July 30th, 2020, um, there's great potential for lifting our horizon of what's possible in terms of taking on this particular domain of white supremacy and policing and incarceration. And four months ago, people regarded those of us who talked about defunding the police and moving resources over to schools and healthcare as wackadoos, right? As radicals, <laughs> which is the radical part is probably true. But everyone is now talking about the rationality of that argument. And so you know, it's the, the agency, the brilliance, the intelligence of the people who have been most impacted, who've been putting ideas on the table for years saying, no, this is the wrong way of doing it. Let's try this. It's because we've been doing that work that there are blueprints already in place for us to move forward with. The best example of this is Black Lives Matter LA. BLM LA had written the people's budget before the uprising began. They had done the dream work. They had done the hard work of going through and combing through the LA city budget to figure out what needed to move, be moved where to create a, a thriving community. That was ready and in place. And when the uprising began, then we were able to push it through. They were able to push it through and get more um, conversation about it and put that on the table for consideration. So um, all that hard work is now paying off and we'll see where it goes. So I'm interested to ask about your particular role in that work, um, and particularly in the way in which you understand the relationship between your scholarship and your activism. Um, in terms of your own historical method, you've talked about building a rebel archive. Um, and I think that points to the intersection of scholarship and activism. And I'm wondering, you know, can, can you reflect on your method or more broadly, your understanding of that point of intersection between scholarship and activism in your own work. <laughs> okay, you're going to want something elegant. But what I'm going to say is my method is to stumble forward as best as, best as I can, <laughs> <laughs> um, to be completely frank and honest about it. Um, I am a historian. I feel that is my craft. That is where I am strongest is in digging up those, those histories and trying to craft them in a way that 
is connected to our present and can help us to imagine new futures. Um, so a lot of the work that I've been doing more recently in Million Dollar Hoods is not necessarily historical work, but it is work that um, in working with community, um, when I finished City of Inmates, uh, there was a set of questions about how do we get data? How do we get information? How do we get archives, right, out of the state, out of the local law enforcement? And I felt like that was somewhere I could contribute to the movement, that I could utilize um, the, the power of the institution where I work to go after the data. And so that's what we did. And when we won the data, then it became a question of what do we do with it? Um, and I had to learn really quickly what big data is and how to build a team and um, what GIS is. And together between the community and a pretty extraordinary team we put together here at UCLA of um, data scientists, we were able to build this mapping system, Million Dollar Hoods, where we show how much is spent on incarceration per neighborhood. So every neighborhood where more than a million dollars is spent per year locking up people in our local jail system, boom, is a million dollar hood. We built this based upon um, some work that was happening back east, million dollar blocks project, and some work and thinking that people incarcerated in New York had been doing about zip codes. And so my method in that sense is to listen and do what I'm told by most impacted communities who say, okay, this is what we need. You're in this particular position to help us get it. Go do it. <laughs> and that's how Million Dollar Hoods happened, right? Is that collaboration. In, in most, that is people, I think in the academy see it as my project. It is not my project, not by any means. I've had the pleasure and honor of administering pieces of it, but that truly is a community driven, community accountable research project. And if it has been of service, it's because we have listened to um, the, the brilliance of community members who were telling us what to do. I, I, I think while acknowledging the importance of, of community members, you've played a little bit more of a guiding role than you've just let on. But um, we don't need to go back and forth on that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious uh, to ask a question that um, many of us academics um, are curious to know, which is, what was it like to get the MacArthur Award? What did that mean for you and your work? What was it like to get that phone call? And and what do you want to? What kind of use do you want to put the resources of that prize toward? Yeah, um, getting the phone call was bewildering, right? You're just going about your day, <laughs> and you think someone's calling you and telling you lies, and you're trying to figure out why someone would call you and do such a thing. <laughs> um, it's been a, a blessing and a burden. So certainly, the ways in which the MacArthur has allowed myself and associated projects to show up in spaces has been useful, I'll be frank, right? So it is a little bit of varnish and polish. It's a piece of um, bona fides that when we've been doing all this radical work and talking and you show up with a MacArthur in, in your crew, right? It, it, it has helped us and we've used it strategically for those purposes. It means nothing, right? It, it, in, in sense of my own intelligence, right? Of the genius, what it does do is it gives us another tool to keep pushing um, for the world in which we, we believe, the world in which we dream. That's the blessing part. The, the burden part is, it frankly made me busier than I've ever been in my life. Um, in my, I've gotten to know some incredible people I never would have met without that connective tissue. And I want to be involved in so much. I want to support so much that is happening. I want to participate. I want to listen. I want to hear. Um, and so it makes it difficult to make choices with what I can do in the course of my, my day. Because there's so much beautiful work that's happening everywhere across this country. Um, and frankly, in many, all around the world. 
So that's the part that's very, for me personally, very difficult is trying to make decisions about how to move forward. What do you think needs to be done at your own institution at UCLA in this moment of uprising, of new consciousness, of despair, of hope? Um, UCLA has been your home for a pretty long time. You did your PhD at UCLA. Um, you've been on the faculty for a pretty long time. What do we need to be thinking and doing as our share in this moment? We need to lead, right? And there is a mass uprising for black life that is happening across this country and around the world. And that uprising and that opening for black life is an opening for all of us who have been racially marginalized, um, historically aggrieved, set aside. And so UCLA, I would say, and you know, you and I can have a conversation about this. I'm curious about your thoughts as well, which often calls itself the leading public institution of the world, needs to honor that identity that we've assumed for ourselves by figuring out how to shift our own internal budgets so that they reflect a firm commitment to making racial justice real in every way um, in terms of admissions, curriculum, um, faculty hiring, staff hiring, creating pathways for our, our staff members to, um, to be mobile, economically mobile, and how we engage community members. What is the responsibility of a UC campus? I, I regard us as the people's think tank, UC campuses, right? That we're really here to conduct research that improves the conditions of life. UCLA has to get serious about investing in research that attacks white supremacy, and improves the conditions of life, led by Black life in this moment, but certainly not exclusive to Black life. So I would like to see UCLA lead on all of those points. That is going to take a confrontation with UCLA's varied commitments to policing, right? Policing on our own campus and the ways in which the intellectual agenda of this campus has contributed to um, the evolution of the police state. That can go you know, back to work that has been done here to support um, you know, stop and frisk policies that can include work that has happened here to help to transform the LAPD and other law enforcement agencies into um, more technocratic states. And I'm explicitly talking about predictive policing in this case. Um, UCLA currently has a, a significant involvement in the LAPD's new policing program, the community policing program. And so we need to think about the ways in which our intellectual agendas prop up the police, police state. And if it's doing harm, if our intellectual work is doing harm, we need to figure out how we're going to address that as a community. Right? I'm not talking about um, challenging tenure rules necessarily. I am talking about us having a robust conversation about who we are as an intellectual community and how we want to contribute to the world in which we live. Um, so those are some things that we need to do. Um, and certainly we got to lead by transforming, perhaps even abolishing our own police department. We can show this world if we choose to do so, how we can invest in public safety systems that really keep our most marginalized community members safe and give them the confidence of that safety. So I would like to see us do all of those things. It won't happen overnight. Um, it's going to be a long road, but our leadership has got to come to a position to say that they are open to taking that journey with us. Well, I think we are going to have to devote a whole nother hour to that question of um, how to reimagine UCPD. And I'm particularly interested in knowing um, how you would address 
you know, those with a reformist agenda who would say, we need to reform the police. Um, you know, are they potential partners at this moment um, or not? Um, or, you know, sort of, is there any room for conversation or dialogue um, between, say, the abolitionist position and the reformist position? Um, not to mention sort of the predictive policing, which I suppose imagines itself as some sort of reformist agenda as well. Um, but that's a huge question, I think, for uh, our next hour together, which um, I very much look forward to. Um, before we conclude, I just want to ask you to reflect on your vocation, um, which you um, practice so skillfully, um, and ask, what do you think we should learn from the past uh, as a guide to action in the present? That is a very difficult question. I can tell you what I get from the past that's meaningful to me. I am always filled by the courage of people from the past. When you look at the conditions that they have confronted and they have still lifted their voices, they have, can still, they have continued to push back, press back, find openings, I think it's, it's, for me, that's what I get most out of history. And people often say like, why do you write about these really dire things? And I don't write about dire things, actually. I'm writing about the people who are in these conditions and fight back. But I gotta kind of write out for you how bad the shit really was for us to understand how courageous and credible and creative and uplifting they are and were, right? Um, and that's what I really see. And uplifting. So yeah. people often think I write about the police state, which I do. but. I, Deep inside of that is the everyday people who have found ways to thrive within it and against it. So that's what I get most out of history because life is struggle. Um, we're not going to create, I don't think, a utopia. I don't think that's part of the human condition, but we constantly push and move. Life is struggle. And you know, I, in the history, find people who inspire me deeply. And that's why I, I keep at it. In a sense, your approach generates a kind of genealogy of adaptive creative resistance from which we can, and, and in particularly in this period, must learn. Well, thank you, Kelly, for joining us on Then and Now. It's really been a pleasure having you uh, on this episode. It's always good to see you and talk to you next time in person. I hope so. Uh, thank you to our listeners out there as well. Let us know your thoughts about this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at Luskin Center at history.ucla.edu. That's L-U-S-K-I-N Center at history.ucla.edu. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a healthy and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.